Halito, and welcome to Native Chalk Talk, a podcast by Natives for all. Here, we're keeping our Native ancestors' stories and history alive, while also sharing with you our Native cultures, traditions, and more. I'm Rachel Youngman, a Choctaw originally from Anadarko, Oklahoma. I hope you'll enjoy this journey with me as we learn from our Native American guests. And stay tuned for the end of each episode, where we'll talk about some great ways to support Native causes and or Native-owned businesses. Let's get started. But first, a word from our sponsor. The Choctaw Nation has always provided a foundation upon which a future can be built. From our home in Southeast Oklahoma to a bingo hall that grew to be one of the largest casinos in the world. Today's summer school programs lay the groundwork for a love of learning. Small business programs support local economies. And with over 10,000 jobs created, Choctaw offers financial stability to tribal members and our neighbors. Together we build success because together we're more. He was raised in a home with no electricity and no running water on his family's Indian allotment land in Western Oklahoma, out where that bright red dirt could both stain your clothes and in some way stirs that oaky pride. Perhaps you'd assume he may not have the opportunity to leave the family farm and head off to college someday, but this red dirt oaky will knock your socks off with his knowledge and expertise. My guest today is likely the only remaining Caddo today that can completely build a Kuhut Kiwat. You'll find out what that is in just a bit. He's a historian, lecturer, Caddo traditional songs and dances lead singer, author, drummer, woodworker, flute maker, and honestly holds about 50 additional points of expertise. (laughs) Probably the remaining thing he hasn't tackled yet is building a rocket ship, but oh yeah, I left that out. He's also a mechanical engineer with special focus in aerodynamics. What am I doing with my life? (laughs) So never mind there. He's probably working on that rocket ship as we speak. And may I also point out, he's from my hometown of Anadarko, Oklahoma. Mr. Phil Yakoki for joining us today and high fives to my fellow Anadarkoan. Well, it's good to be with you. And I'll say kawahot, which is a Caddo greeting, which uh, in one way means how are you, and another is just saying hello. So let's go back a bit. I know you live in Anadarko now, but where were you born, and where did you grow up? I was born in Albuquerque, New Mexico. My family was out there, my mom and dad and, and several siblings, uh, after my dad got out of the uh, Haskell Institute. Mm-hmm. He was a football player, and... Uh, he went to the University of New Mexico, where he was a star quarterback. Wow! And so uh, after he uh, left the school there, we uh, he got employment there with the uh, uh, Indian Health Service, and uh, so there was a number of us that were uh, were born out there. Hmm. And uh, after uh, a few years, uh, our family returned to Oklahoma and settled around our little town of Colony, Oklahoma. And uh, eventually, when I was a youngster, probably about six years old, uh, we settled on our allotted land there on Cobb Creek, just southeast of Colony, Oklahoma. So and, uh, we lived there, all, all, of, uh, all of us except a couple of young, youngsters graduated from the, uh, the public school of 
colony, Oklahoma. Hmm. And from there, went on after got out of high school, went to uh, um, Southwestern State for a couple of years, and then went to Oklahoma State, where I majored in uh, mechanical engineering and aerodynamics engineering. Wow. So great. Sounds like you uh, kind of had a great start to your uh, profession there. And But you're Caddo, but you primarily grew, grew up around two other tribes. What tribes were those? Yes, uh, our uh, allotment was uh, abutted the Cheyenne and Arapaho allotment. In fact, the high school we went to, uh, or the public school, was started for Cheyenne and Arapahoes. But since we were next door, like a couple of miles, mm-hmm. that's where we went to school. So uh, we mixed with many Cheyenne and Arapahoes. And uh, two of my uncles married uh, Cheyenne ladies. And so we had a great mix with uh, those two tribes. Um, also, we're not, we're just a few miles, 15 miles north of uh, Carnegie, Oklahoma, where there are many uh, Kiowa uh, tribal members. And uh, we had a great, uh, almost constant uh, uh, mingling with uh, those tribes. So. Hmm. Uh, I, I feel like I have just a great, great basis for Indian culture uh, in, in, uh, in addition to our cattle culture, in which, uh, of course, we have many kinfolk and uh, did, uh, uh, you know, attended dances and social events and ceremonies uh, over east of us around Binger, Oklahoma, where our tribal headquarters mm. Okay. We're located now, are located now. Absolutely. And, and you mentioned being around all these different tribes and cultures, which is something most people can't say, you know, about the way they grew up or um, what their community looks like. But I think it's so interesting to, if you look back to the past, could those tribes have just hung out together back in the day? Some of them could, but some of them could not. Some of them were warring tribes for sure. And isn't it cool to look at today? where you look around and when, especially when I'm home, I can look around and go, Kiowa, Comanche, a little bit of cattle over there. And it's kind of a neat thing to see these days, isn't it? True. Um, uh, and over the years, it's all over reservations, former reservations are next to one another. You know, we have great True. mingling and intermarrying. I, I married a Kiowa lady mm-hmm. and uh, you have Kiowa children. So a lot of, uh, Families here have uh, multi-tribal um, uh, 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 backgrounds. Yeah. And are, yeah. And usually are a member of one tribe, but then are, you know, just have uh, participated in many, uh, many other tribes' events. And uh, it's uh, kind of a pan, pan-Indian thing out here in a way. Yeah. <laughs> we all attend each other's events, uh, gourd dances and powwows and ceremonies. Uh, and, uh, you know, everybody's, um, most everybody seems to know everybody else and, and our kin, you know, after, so, uh, you know, when we mingled and when, when the allotments occurred in 1901, uh, from then on, uh, the mixing of the tribes and marrying it's, it's hard to talk to somebody without realizing that they're either kin or, or very close uh, acquaintances, <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's good for us, I think. Right, so my 
cousins, cousins, cousin. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't our ancestors look down on all that and go, wow, a lot has happened in the last couple of centuries. <laughs> <laughs> so I honestly have so many questions for you today. Uh, starting off, would you share about the history of the Caddo, perhaps starting with where the Caddo lived prior to removal? Uh, our, our major areas are in a, in a four uh, uh, confluence, uh, Southeast Oklahoma, Southwest Arkansas, Northeast Texas and Northwest Louisiana. Uh, there's a map that uh, has been developed by archeologists and anthropologists that, that has about a 250,000 uh, square mile uh, wow. area that, that we, that, that is identifiable Caddo uh, uh, ancestry according to archeological things. Of course, later on as, as the Europeans came, that area shrunk, but we still maintain the area down on the Red River in Oklahoma and over into Arkansas, down into Louisiana in Northeast Texas. Okay. So, and that was our, our uh, when Europeans came, that was our area. Okay, yeah. And then everything changed from there, of course. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, um, tragic, I don't know how else to put it, but we were almost wiped out by uh, uh, disease. Mm. And, then, and then later in battles and just being moved and shuffled around here. And there's luck, uh, lucky that Caddo's uh, survived at all. It was a sort of form of genocide that occurred uh, uh, to us. Absolutely, it was. Well, the uh, other than knowing where we were located and then descriptions by uh, European explorers, French, Spanish, and English, uh, we were there were three major groups of us. The Catahodacho, which is up around the Red River and the bend over into Arkansas. The Hacine, which are located uh, west of Nacogdoches, Texas, at, around Caddo Mounds. And then the Natchitoches, which were located on the Red River over in Louisiana at the now the city of uh, Natchitoches, Louisiana. Mm -hmm. So that was our grouping up to uh, when uh, the uh, uh, Europeans, European contact. And uh, so there's good descriptions of us being in those locations. Mm -hmm. uh, we, were, we were strongly affiliated, spoke much of the same language with a lot of differences too. Um, but uh, were, were eventually considered as one group and, and eventually merged mm -hmm. in, in historic time. And then in 1859, there were only about 500 Caddo's left. Why was that? That came about from, uh, from the uh, diseases that Europeans brought with them. Oh, yeah. In which there was just a just astonishing, dramatic, tragic uh, and uh, loss of life of cattle in our in our 
uh, area down around in, in the four four state area there, mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, and then as um, uh, in the early 1830s when the cattle's were being um, uh, strongly being forced into ceding the the reservation lands in that area, uh, the um, and, and we're forced to start moving out of our uh, reservation or our former homelands down there. Then cattle started being uh, losing wherever they went. They'd be under attack, and uh, over time, just the uh, it, it was impossible to maintain any sort of of uh, population mm. just by by not being able to to to, to uh, flourish in any area and, and continually losing their uh, our tribal members mm. and so as we were pushed out of our homelands in 1835 we were forced in fact we signed an agreement that in 1835 when we signed that that we would we agreed to remove ourselves from the U.S. boundaries in one year. So it just left a lot of cattle scattering here and there and mainly over into Northeast Texas. Hmm. And so just keeping uh, things together and, and, and the long trail from there up into where uh, uh, we were uh, landed over in West Texas, west of Fort Worth and south of Graham, Texas, on a reservation. Um, we um, uh, just lost many, many people. Just, you just can't keep going from one place to another yeah. and uh, not suffer, not just hardship, but uh, loss of life. Wow, that's hard. So you wrote and produced a documentary called Disinherited, Caddo Indians' Loss of Their Homelands. It was about the removal of Caddo's from their ancient homelands to their reservation in Oklahoma. For our listeners, when we say removal, that's when the government was opening up more territory in the U.S. for settlement and removed Indians from their homeland, moving them to Indian territory, now Oklahoma. Some also know the term the Trail of Tears, representative of the suffering and death many American Indians faced on their way to their new lands. From what I understand, the Caddo were moved from their homelands twice. Is that correct? If so, tell us more about what that entailed. Well, in uh, in a way, twice we we were removed from our homelands in northwest Louisiana, which was about a million acres or more to start with. Although, as they surveyed it more and more, and, and they just chipped away a, a lot of that uh, of that homeland, so that was the first removal mm -hmm. and forced removal. Of course, we agreed, said, "Yeah, we're going to remove ourselves," which kind of is a backhanded way of saying it, that uh, we removed ourselves when really we were forced out. <laughs> the second was when we um, we were given or, or a reservation was set up uh, in um, uh, West Texas, west of Fort Worth, and uh, us, the Caddo's, along with uh, several other tribes, were put on a fairly small reservation there. I think it was only 74 square miles. Mm. 
-hmm. but a very nice place uh, on the Brazos River. It's called the Brazos Reserve. Okay. And uh, we settled out there in the 18, uh, late 1830s and into the 1840s, just because we found there was there was places out there which seemed a little safer for us. And then, but then uh, uh, we were having such so many attacks from uh, uh, Texas soldiers and various militia that there was a gentleman came along and said they need to have a reservation and, and uh, have some protection. So we were given that Brazos reservation in 1854. Okay. But five years later, 1859, the, there was such a, uh, a cry for getting us out of the country that we were forced then straight up to um, uh, the Washita River at Anadarko, Oklahoma. So that was our second uh, removal. Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. That really clears it up for me. I was like, why are there two when I was doing some research? So that really helps. Um, when my ancestors, the Choctaw, were removed from Mississippi in the 1830s, they were placed in what was part of Caddo territory at that time in Southeast Oklahoma. Now the Caddo and the Choctaw were warring tribes, even though the Caddo were loosely related to the Yawani Choctaw. And I've got a video I'll be sure to post on my native Choctaw Facebook page. It's uh, a video of Joseph Wolf of the Choctaw Nation talking about the Battle of Caddo Hills. The Choctaw used to come into Caddo territory and hunt their buffalo. And of course, the Caddo weren't too happy about this. So, you know, stop messing with our buffalo man. So in 1808, the Choctaw crossed the Mississippi River and went to war with the Caddo. And the Choctaw did win this battle, returning with poles topped with scalps. So Phil, please don't hold it against me. It was a long time ago. I promise I totally like the Caddo. <laughs> yes, I won't hold that uh, against you. There, there was a lot of, we had... Um, one of our major enemies from from before European contact going way back was with the Osage, who had a fondness for coming down from their area down the entire area just regularly and uh, creating mayhem and and um, <laughs> taking lives and uh, and, and just re really were destructive to us. So, but that's all in the past. My sister married a prominent Osage. So that helped settle things down in modern <laughs> times. And so I have a lot of Osage uh, kin and acquaintances and so forth. And, and in fact, the Caddo's and the Osage were big uh, Native American church or peyote uh, mm -hmm. religion. And uh, the, the two tribes seemed to get to come together on that in a very strong way. Wow, again. Just uh, our ancestors looking down going, what in the world has happened? <laughs> but probably glad we've all worked out our differences at this point. It's amazing what can happen when you throw everybody into the same place together. You're either going right. to kill each other or learn to get along. But so are there, are there any other Caddo stories or, you know, enemies or significant battles you wanted to chat through? Well, after we were, uh, run out of Louisiana and uh, and, and um, coalesced uh, 
first around Kettle Lake, which is near Jefferson. Uh, it, it's on a border between Texas and um, Louisiana, Cattle Lake. And so we coalesced there, two of us, the Natchitoches and the Cattoadacho, and um, the Pasine down south of us there held on. And uh, But as, as time went on, they, they joined, the three joined together and in, in the aftermath of the uh, of our uh, signing the treaty to cede our lands we started roaming north north texas from from uh, the the border on the east out to the brazos river way out in western uh, western texas okay and from there through over the next decade and more we were engaged in in um, many battles, and mm. there's been documented 50 battles uh, that that we were in from uh, and located on the Rio Grande, south part of Texas, up to the Red River, and uh, many many uh, deadly encounters uh, because other tribes that had joined us, and, and there were about eight or 10 tribes that had come down when, when um, uh, Andrew Jackson uh, started his Indian removal poli policies, uh, many of them came down and joined us. So many of them uh, joined us in these battles. Uh, those that had arrived uh, recently uh, to those that were already there, the Comanche and uh, Tonkawa, and uh, several others, Wichita, who were already in the area. So these battles would detail. The, I have a list of it if anybody wants to to uh, to get that. That tells uh, who were the uh, who were the tribes involved, how many were killed, where they were, and I made a map of it. What uh, I would love to see that is that is that one of the things that you sell on your website, or is it something? You just no, have? no, that's that's uh, I haven't put that. Uh, to, uh, together in that form. Oh, just, I would love I to see that. I posted it on our on our some of our cattle uh, uh, Facebook page. Okay. And it it when you look at it, you see all of these spots. You know, I highlight. Well, you know, I put a star wherever a battle was, and you see it's all over Texas, really. Wow. Con concentrated in some areas, and um, how how dangerous that time was. That that's. One of the reasons we ended up with so few, so few members uh, uh, in in uh, in the eighteen sixties. A lot of them just didn't survive, huh? Right. Wow. I mean, that's that's what's interesting too. Is I think it's we're so far removed from those times. I think we forget that these were human beings. That it, surely, for some of them, on one hand, they were probably ready for war, ready for whatever they had to do to protect their tribe and their people. But at the same time, there had to have been some scared people as well. Can you imagine with, wow. you know, there's things going on in Russia and um, Ukraine right now, and it stirs up this bit of fear and makes you start thinking, wow, that can happen. It can happen anywhere. But this was going on, what we're talking about right now with our American Indian people, this was going on for centuries and it probably feel always feel like there was never quite a safe place or there was never a time when you could feel totally calm. 
there's that human element of things that, you know, you don't hear much about that in the history books, but I'm sure it's out there somewhere. Now, the Caddo lived in grass thatched houses, and you're truly the expert on this topic. In fact, it is said that you're likely the last living person who can completely construct the beehive shaped Caddo style grass thatched house. So tell us more. The um, Caddo grass thatched house in, in the beehive uh, style, which is layered grass from top to bottom, was uh, uh, an iconic uh, feature of, of Caddo uh, uh, land holdings here and there. Uh, the Wichita's have one similar to it. Ours is different in several ways. Um, and uh, it, over in the in, in the late 1980s and into the early 1990s, I, I started studying it. And I, I talked to some elders and they said, well, we know, we think we know how it was built, but we, I found out there were very few that had been built after we were settled around Anadarko in 1859. Uh, there's one picture of, of, uh, of these cattle grass thatched houses round with, uh, I guess you could call it a dome. So I kept studying it and uh, I found in, in this John Swanton publication that he put out in the 1930s or 1940s that European explorers meeting the cattles for the first time, each of them described, or several, several of them described how it was put up. And so I kept looking at that and I talked to Wichita and other caddos and they said, yeah, that's how it was done. So I hmm. just took that and, uh, uh, and said, I, I'm going to construct one. So I, I started learning and did it. And I found that wow. no on the caddo side of things, nobody knew anything about it except, yeah, that's how they were done. Right. And so right. Uh, and in time, I have ended up constructing about five of these and uh, just recently one on cattle mounds uh in in uh 2016 which was blown down by a tornado in uh 2018 stood there two years oh, no uh, and um and um in fact i'm just getting ready to, to prepare a discussion uh on a zoom uh, meeting for uh, a, a culture group in New Orleans oh, about the history of the Caddo House. And uh, so I've approached it from, I, we have uh, done it almost exactly, well, as, as, as completely as we could, like the uh, European explorers described it, mm -hmm. which are put up in one day. And these are very large houses, some of them, you know, 30, wow. 40, 50 feet. Could have been one day, huh? Yes, and, and you know, of course, there's a lot of pre-planning, you know. You okay. get the materials, yeah. and at the point of day, you, you bring everything in, and uh, your poles and grass and everything that is needed. And uh, if you've done it for many, many times, then you know exactly what to do, and it, it goes right up. Sure, uh, sure, because they so, did it so many times. I actually, I yes. want to hear all about this. This is so fascinating to me. Like, 
where do you find the materials? What are the materials made of? Um, how do you get that high up to the center? I mean, how did they back in the day? Phil, we need you to come make a new thatched house. What would you do? Well, I would, I would, I've written a description of it and there's a, um, video that was made of the house at Cattle Mounds in 2016 mm -hmm. and the, the putting it up is is simple if you know how of course but uh, <laughs> I'd say here's I've uh, been an engineer uh, I like to do things in a in in measuring ways metering I guess and say here's how many poles you'll need here's how long they'll be Here's how much grass you'll need. And, and when we talk about grass, we talk about a bundle, mm -hmm. which is about a square foot. I mean, a, 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 a bundle that is has a diameter of about one foot. And so you're going to need about 300 of those and you're going to need this many poles and so forth. Right. And right. you stand them straight up and you bend them. And in, in the old days, and I've done it myself uh, and, they would plant a center pole and there'd be a couple of people would go up and uh, bend the poles over in time together. The, the poles are put in first straight, straight uh, vertically. And then um, these two who are in the center pole will reach out and grab a pole from each direction and uh, tie them up. And then uh, from there, willows, I mean, uh, saplings are put on all the way from bottom to the top. Wow. On which the house fits. And How do they? That's, how that's, they... that's as quick as I can say it. That <laughs> makes it sound easy. I'm sure it's, well, how did they get the saplings? Did they have a certain tool that they used back then? Just like kind of a, a spike into the tree or how did they do that? Are, are you talking about harvesting saplings? Is that what you said? Or the trees? Yeah. Yeah, harvesting the saplings. Okay, well, well, they uh, there are uh, hatchets and things uh, uh, before uh, iron tools. You know, we used all kinds of uh, of uh, blades on, attached to uh, uh, a shaft, uh, kind of like a tomahawk, but has a very sharp edge, and so you can cut down a lot of things like that, mm, or okay. just by holding okay. a big piece of uh, uh, of uh, uh, flaked uh, uh, piece of flint and chop at it. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it's uh, simple to do that. The other, you're, you're harvesting poles that are about three to six inches thick. And so those would be chopped all around and then pushed over and uh, uh, harvested like that. There was a, um, there was a house put up at Cattle Mounds by uh, anthropologists uh, back in the 1980s, uh, in which they used all of these uh, tools. And there's a paper that they documented, and they showed, you know, these how they uh, harvested trees and and so forth, and all the materials. They didn't quite know how to put the house together like we do, so it was, uh, but it went up pretty good and. Uh, um, you know, and, and preserved, well, to, to me, demonstrated how stone tools could work. Mm -hmm. right. Right. Wow. And I have a connection, you know, a, a report of that. If anybody wants that, I can send it to them. 
I want it. Can I have one. <laughs> Can you email that to me by any chance? I certainly will. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, mail a number of things to you. Great. I'm I'm a sponge for knowledge, so I'm not even saying I I'm not an expert in any one thing, but I do definitely love to study it all. So for sure. Yeah, well, and, that's the way I am too. Huh? Right. Just soak it in. <laughs> You're right. So when it comes to, I know that these, how tall do you think the, the roof is from the tip, tippy top point down to the ground? If it's uh, uh, the, the height of the, the peak of, the, of the, the frame is related to the diameter. Mm-hmm. And it's about three fourths of the diameter, may, maybe 80%. If it's the 30 foot diameter, then the peak of it would be about 25 to 28 feet in the air. Okay. Gotcha. Wow. And so in that case, how did they get that high up there to do all this stuff? Well, to to start with, the poles are bent by these guys in in the center pole and Mm -hmm. they're tied. And so you, you end up with just a bunch of a framework of a bunch of poles bent and tied at the top. Now to get the grass on what uh, every uh, saplings were attached to this frame horizontally about every 18 inches to, uh, from top to bottom hmm. tied onto the frame. And then grass is sandwiched onto those horizontal saplings, runners, lathes, you might call them, mm-hmm. from starting on the bottom and going up. And in the old days, ladies did all of the, uh, the climbing. And so there would be a lady for each of the poles that she would thatch the, uh, her sector from the bottom to the top. And there's a picture of Wichita's doing this, but I don't have one. I've never seen one of, of Caddo ladies, but Caddo's did the same. Uh, I'm not sure why ladies were better suited to it. Maybe they're more lim- uh, limber and able to do to uh, attach the grass, the mm-hmm. bundles of grass. And uh, so they would climb up and standing on these horizontal saplings that had already been attached and they would use a second sapling to sandwich these bundles of grass onto the uh, frame. Hmm. Okay. This is so cool. So there would be one, one lady per, uh, for every pole. If, and if, you, if the um, diameter of the house, the footprint on the ground, the diameter is about the number of poles you use that, that are that are required to to be bent and tied for the frame, and um, so there would be about thirty ladies climbing straight up, and uh, I'm sure they were very good at it. You know that's why they could do this just a big house in a in a you know let's say by start at dawn and by two o'clock they were ready to eat and do cattle dances Hmm. wow what a day (laughs) all in the day of a life of a (laughs) cattle yes 
Wow. That's interesting. So when you first started doing this with the, the houses, was it, did you ever think that it would become such a big thing? I mean, people are looking to you now to help them, you know, pass on this information and you did the house down in Texas. And then, you know, you're about to do this, um, representation or presentation to this group that's coming up. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you've gone all over the place talking about how you do this and how you build it and that kind of thing. So did you have any idea it would become such a big thing? Well, no, something like this, you don't know where to lead. You know, it just, I just had a very strong uh, desire to, to, to uh, construct these and then, and then to write about them. You know, I'm a, I'm a retired uh, technical writer, which means I had, I've had a career, pretty long career of writing manuals. Like I can write a complete automobile, how to put it together or repair manual. And, uh, <laughs> You're one of those guys. You're the guy behind the Chilton's book. Yeah, I'm, uh, in fact, <laughs> one of my hobbies is reading instructions on how to do things. And, really? Uh, like critique them, yeah. uh, okay, I, I think you've well, crossed the line over to super nerd here, Phil. That's pretty cool. <laughs> so anyway, I, I I turned, you know, I said, well, here's how I do it. Now I'm going to explain it to somebody. And, that, and that's what I've done. So it's turned, Great. I've made a lot of presentations on this and uh, it, uh, it, it just grew from, here's how they look, here's this, the description of them, here's how the Wichita's do them, we do them a little differently. And uh, it just grew from there to, you know, I've had a, quite an extensive career in it, I, I guess. Yeah. So there's been, there's a new one being built in Caddo Mounds in this summer and uh, i'd like to help but i just my health is not good enough that i could stand the heat and travel mm. and that sort of thing yeah when you said summer i was like well well, who can stand it oh it's so bad like it's so hot um well i i hope you'll still get to at least see their progress and see the finished product if nothing else sure sure i will so you know indian city out in anadarko um kind of south of town Obviously it's been closed for a long time, but do you remember, I feel like there was one of those thatched houses out there, but it could have been Wichita. It could have been something else, but did you have a hand in that? Uh, no, I didn't. But uh, the, the Wichita's put up a house out there and, and uh, uh, I know the fellow who did that. In fact, he's the one who helped me on some tech or on some methods when I started learning Mm. And uh, I, I have a lot of pictures of that house. I went out and looked at it and looked at all of the components of it, you know, yeah. the uh, poles and the uh, thatching and all that. Uh, and in fact, it, I, it got to be my friend after a while there. I was out there so much. Yeah. Is it still there? I don't know. I, you know, it's been quite a while since uh, I doubt if it's, it's probably been oh. greatly ravaged by now. Oh, that, that, hurts that my heart. house has been, you know, the park there has been uh, out of commission for a decade or more, mm. I recall. It's too bad. A lot of, you know, it used to be a fun place for anyone to be able to go and walk down into the, I think those are called the Tonkawa Hills maybe, but um, you, yeah, know, you could yes, see these, 
Yeah. And it's beautiful out there and you can see Buffalo in their pen, of course. And then you could see different, this is for our listeners. You could see different, uh, house types of the different, you know, the Kiowa and the Caddo or whoever it was. At yeah. The time. It's a shame so, that I enjoyed being, in fact, I worked there one summer. You did? Uh, as they, uh, got in touch with me and say, Hey, can you, uh, uh, about my archery and bows and arrows and they said yeah. we'd like to have somebody who can uh uh can put on demonstrations regularly so i did that one one week and how had cool a good was that? time yeah was that when ou owned it or how long ago was that no it, it was it well no it was owned by a, a group uh, a um no, uh, well i guess non-profit group that had been uh oh, created okay. here Wow. And uh, there was a, uh, you know, all different tribes were represented in that group. They had a nice little museum. Yeah, they did, actually. I remember that. And then some things you could buy, some little right, anything right. from trinkets nice, to. Yeah, a nice little gift shop. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of people worked out there. Wow. I miss those days. I miss going out there and be so hot, but we were, it was so worth it. And I'm really glad that my daughter got to see it when it was opened for a short period of time one summer. And we're like, we have to go, we have to take our kids. So my daughter and nieces, niece and nephews all went out there. And I was like, this might be the last time you see it. And it really was, it was the last time we all saw it. So, uh-huh. mm. Well, for our listeners, Phil has put together some interesting information on his American Indian Chronicles website, which I'll place on my Native Chalk Talk Facebook page so y'all can check it out. You can purchase DVDs, including on the topic we just mentioned, such as Disinherited Caddo Indians Loss of Their Homelands. I think you'd really enjoy it and get a lot out of it. So please check it out, y'all. Again, I'll place that on my Facebook page. A couple more facts about our Caddo friends. There are 6,000 enrolled Caddos today. 3,000 of those live in Oklahoma. And Tejas is the Spanish version of the Caddo word Taisha, which means those who are friends. And from the Spanish version of that Caddo word comes the word Texas. Hello, Texas. Had you heard that before, Phil? Oh yes, uh, the uh, Tasha is a uh, is several uh, people are named that around here. Really, <laughs> uh, which means friend and um, love it. Uh, the, there's a Tasha Facebook page that I often oh. post things for about well, like the cattle house and our battles and many other things. Wow, I love it. I love that. Okay, so we've gone over the history of the Caddo. Let's talk about your own background and your family's history. Tell us about the land on which you were raised and what tribal lands that entailed. And by the way, listeners, this is so interesting. You're going you're gonna to get a lot out of this. Well, I was, uh, I think I mentioned earlier that we settled back on our allotted uh, land, which was allotted in 1901, which many tribes, other tribes here were, were uh, allotted and uh, 160 acres uh, on Cobb Creek, which is which is what feeds Fort Cobb Lake out here, a Bureau uh, U.S. Bureau Lake, mm-hmm. and um, we um, we were farmers. We raised cash crops of cotton and maize and alfalfa. 
but uh, and then used a lot of that for feeding our uh, our livestock, which we didn't have a big. Uh, we had uh, some horses and mm-hmm. uh, milk cows, hogs, and and just existed on our on our land there. Uh, so so we were farmers, and so I grew up being around uh, mechanical things like. Um, tractors and and uh, uh, hares and uh, 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 trucks and so forth and and uh, they're always in constant need of repair so that's what I saw all the time helped my dad do those uh, repairs and uh, maintenance and so forth mm-hmm. and I really enjoyed that in fact that was my my uh, early desire, aspiration was I was going to be a good mechanic of some sort. You know, you right. around right. a lot and putting a wrench on a nut and, you know, tightening things or taking things apart is what I truly enjoyed. Uh, and anything that could be taken apart, I would do it and put it back together. Um, <laughs> like, yeah, 1873 uh, Winchester rifle. Uh, and I at early age, I could take that apart, every bit of it, and put it back together. And he, and later on, even got bullets to. Um, I found someplace that sold the bullets for it, uh, the cartridges, and uh, wired it up and shot it. Uh, wow. I, I stood. Wow. By, I wired it up first because I was afraid it might explode. But later on, I found out it shot really good. And it, <laughs> I could take a gnat off a hundred yards. Dang! <laughs> You're like, I had no idea that so, this would actually work. Wow. Well, I mean, it, I laugh because, you know, obviously you became a mechanical engineer. You could see the writing on the wall for you very early on. Yes. Uh, well, that, that was a springboard for me. And growing up there, you know, we were uh, poor farmers, but had a good, uh, uh, very strong parents. And uh, in fact, at our school, there were four of us that were valedictorians. Wow. And, uh, wow. Salutatorians. And so we did good. Um, and and our parents strongly suggested we get in, go, uh, you know, take some, some uh, post uh, high school education. Several of my sisters went to Haskell Institute and uh, and then several of us went on to college uh, to and and uh, have done well in in the education field. I uh, ended up at Oklahoma State where I had a uh, took up mechanical engineering in particular uh, aerodynamics and aerospace, which uh, I had a uh, you know I, I just like airflow around wings you know the aerodynamics and uh, propulsion systems and so forth and then when i graduated from there i went to work for a um aerospace company in in uh, fort worth general dynamics then it later became lockheed yeah we kind of know that name <laughs> that's big and, time uh, yeah um and and uh, i was there five years and uh, doing mainly flight manuals which which were uh which told help the pilot uh develop a flight plan in fact we helped them in uh 
and flight plans that would deliver nuclear weapons from Carswell Air Force Base there to Russia. In fact, Russia was, they claimed at that time that our the airplane we, we had uh, manufactured there was the only airplane they were afraid of hmm. because it could fly low, high, low, and deliver and get gone. So that was an exciting time for me. I, uh, you know, made Heck use yeah. of my and uh, got to go to Edwards Air Force Base on some uh, uh, on some jobs where we were trying to check things out. And so I was a youngster, single, and uh, had a great time with it there. That's fantastic. Coming from a family who does a lot of flying, this definitely appeals to me. It sounds like it was a dream job, right? Especially for a mechanical engineer, because so many of them don't get to end up doing what they really wanted to do. Maybe they basically for the first 20 years, they're just dealing with the widgets where you got to do the flight manuals and things like that. Pretty cool. Yeah. Not, not only that, but uh, we were in flight test performance. So part of our job was following uh, our different test airplanes. So we would go out in the flight line and uh, uh, talk to pilots as they were doing their, we, we'd set up test runs with them. And so they'd take off and we'd listen and they would tell us different things about hmm. this and that. And then they'd come in and land and then they would debrief us, talk about squawks, which mean anything that was out of the way. Huh. And so I felt like a big shot sitting in there, you know, me from yeah. red, red dirt, Western Oklahoma. And here and I a am. Colony, Oklahoma. To, Look at that. Yeah, I love that. To the highest level of pilots, test pilots, and, and the most technical advanced uh, airplanes, which I knew much, much about. Not everything, but, uh, you know, uh, I knew what they were saying. So, well, and that, were they, were these pilots? uh in the the air force or were they um private sector these, no they these were hired by our our uh, corporation general dynamics so they were they were employees of mm-hmm. our of our but they were we did have some air force pilots after they were the plane was checked out the air force pilots would take them and check them out and then we'd you know they'd come back and tell us you know if there's any problems so they thought was important. Hmm. So interesting. I love it. Well, it's interesting too, that again, early on you were showing signs of, Hey, I'm going to become a mechanical engineer someday. Just y'all wait. And you also were a little bit of an archeologist when you were younger. Uh, you told me something that made me absolutely salivate and I'm so jealous. Tell them, Phil, tell them what you found on your land. Yes, well, uh, our land, our allotment happened to be in, include almost in, entirely a village that was date, dated a uh, thousand A.D. And so, right where our house sat, and along the creeks and around the bend there, we would find all of these uh, pottery and and arrowheads and hatchets and so forth. And uh, so I grew up, you know, and especially after a good rain, a good hard rain, it would wash away, you know, the very top of the soil. And these things would just be sticking out all over. Yeah, and that a dream come true for people who love history and love 
seeing remnants of the people that were here before us. Wow. I'm so jealous. Keep going. Keep going. Uh, it, uh, yeah, it sparked my imagination being a, um, bow maker and archer and someone who really used these for hunting, you know, I mean, it, it's mm -hmm. just, it's recreation too, but, uh, you know, over my life, I've hunted uh, deer and elk and all kind of small game, uh, coyotes, uh, you name it. And uh, so this was, I was taking things out of the ground there really and, and making use of them. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you can make a greater connection from from a, a former <laughs> culture right. to current and using tools even that they used uh, in, in my uh, uh, in my recreation and, and hunting with uh, bow and arrow. So it was a great uh, link all the way around there. Uh, there was a actually a University of Oklahoma came out the year I graduated high school and did a dig on that land. And it, it's, it's well documented. It's one of the foremost uh, Western sites that, uh, that has been in the publications and, and the, uh, uh, the history of uh, sites in, uh, in Oklahoma. Hmm. So uh, uh, it, it, it provided a, real platform for me as a, as a youngster and growing older. And I have the report that was done on the site. And, it, you know, one thing is interesting. It was, uh, they found a number of burials there. And one of them had a arrowhead lodged in, a, in its spine. What? When I saw that, I thought, you know, that, uh, that actually happened. <laughs> no doubt not... Uh, they put it lively, like like not pleasant for the uh, recipient of that of that uh, arrowhead. Wow! And uh, in fact, we were farmers, and we didn't know, you know, we, we didn't know there was a village there, so we farmed right over that village, grew cotton and uh, oh my god, <laughs> and things, you know. And later on, we said, you know, we you know we didn't know any different, but you know, we might have treated it a little differently if we had if we knew it and uh, maybe we, we wouldn't have farmed it but. <laughs> well yeah but man that's I mean how would you have known first of all but think of how many of us may have lived on land like that too where there was stuff underneath our feet and we had no idea so tell us a little bit more about what you did with the artifacts and you know I think you said it's in a museum right many of the artifacts that were taking taken out of there by the University of Oklahoma were put in a uh, in a museum in a, on the university campus and uh, some of these are just beautiful things you know we were uh, at times our family would go over and, and look at these things so it's good they were preserved uh, there, there's a lot of uh, pot hunters who came on our land we didn't know what they were doing some of the time you know they hauled a lot of things off which uh, Later on, I found out where a lot of it went, but we they wouldn't return it to it. So anyway, yeah, that's, that's before, you know, there were laws, laws on that sort of right, thing. Right. But I mean, seriously, I can't imagine going outside, it raining, and then there's like arrowheads sticking up out of the ground, or you could just do a little bit of digging around the house. You might find something. Oh, that would have been amazing. True. Mm-hmm. Wow. And we, we were not pot hunters. Uh, I want to make that clear that 
if something was sticking out of the ground, we'd take it and put it in our collection. Right. But we did not do any digging or any, uh, you know, like, hey, I'm going to go find some pots today that, that pot hunters do. You know, we didn't do that. Okay, gotcha. Out of respect for the situation or? Yes, pretty much. And, and it mm -hmm. just, to me, it was like, these things will be made known to us by rain or other things. So we'll just wait till that. Maybe it's more. Yeah. Exactly. More natural way to go about it. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I wonder how many years it had been since anyone had lived there before y'all moved onto the land. I don't know. Was someone living there before you? Cause basically uh, otherwise it was untouched land for many, many years. Right. Well, sort of, uh, it was, um, one of our, uh, extended family lived there before we did and they farmed it and uh, you know they found things too but uh it was you know and, the, and that extended family and ours you know we, we just we were trying to exploit those artifacts you know mm -hmm. we'd find them and keep it and that was it you know yeah so from from probably the late 1800s through um when our family was there, you know, when the allotments came around, people would come in and say, I live over here, so I want that allotment right there. So that's that's how that happened. And so there would have been mm -hmm. yeah. uh, farming activities going on there, growing corn and, you know, garden things for going way back. Mm -hmm. So now let's talk about your ancestors as something that I like to do on Native Chalk Talk to help honor their memory and keep their stories alive. May they never be forgotten. We can start with your dad. Why don't you tell us his name and about the house where he grew up? My dad was born uh, on our allotment. It wasn't an allotment. Well, I, I take that back. It was an allotment. He was born just after 1901. Um, in those days, a lot of people had dug out houses, which means they dug down six, eight feet and then covered that with some thatching and that was their home. And he was born on our allotment there in um, western Oklahoma. And uh, uh, he was born to cattle uh, parents and um, went to school locally there at a, just a little country school and grew up and um, after graduating from high school, he went to um, Haskell Institute where he played on those famous Indian, uh, the Haskell Indian football teams up there. And uh, had, a, had a good career there. My, uh, uh, and, and our families traced back to, uh, uh, were members of the White Bee Group, which was a group that stayed, when we were told to get out, we sold seeded our land in, in uh, Louisiana, there was a, a group called White Bead that uh, didn't go west. We went, our group went north into Arkansas around and came over and stayed with the Choctaws and, mm -hmm. and for a while. And so that was my, my uh, dad's uh, family uh, ancestry. And uh, on my mother's side, She's a Potawatomi, and our our group uh, group of pots, as we call ourselves, started mm -hmm. around uh, 
South Bend, Indiana, and we were friends of the uh, Catholics there. And uh, the story, I guess it's documented. I've never checked into it. It's that we agreed, we gave land to Notre Dame University in exchange for them feeding us and helping take care of us over, you know, for uh, as long as the rivers flowed and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't too long that we were run out of there and went over into Iowa and, and some went up into Wisconsin. Uh, in fact, our family is traced back to Green Bay, Wisconsin, where a cattle lady married a, uh, I, I mean, a Potawatomi lady married a, uh, a person who had set up a trading post there. And from there, they moved down to Council Bluffs, Iowa, and then down into Kansas later, where they settled on a reservation in around Mayetta, Kansas. Mm -hmm. And that's where my mother grew up. And then later on, moved down into Oklahoma and met my dad and started a family. So uh, we have, you know, to, to me, that's strong roots in, in uh, tribal tribal lands and history and uh, perseverance and so forth. Mm -hmm. Indeed. We can, all, we can all go back and say, man, how did I ever get here with all of that right. turmoil and chaos and danger going on? But uh, so. Uh, Good point. Uh, so she and, and uh, uh, we have, she gave us all Potawatomi names also. And, uh, of our eight, eight uh, children, uh, brothers and sisters. And uh, uh, my dad knew cattle and so forth, but it, it was not a great big deal, you know, big deal to him to, to speak or to have, uh, you know, have any special cultural sorts of things. So, yeah, uh, but we were side by side with, you know, plenty of culture people and, and, and learned that cattle sure, and other yeah. tribes. It's crazy how quickly once the language started dying out, a lot of that had to do with the boarding schools or just the time and place with what was going on. Once the languages started dying out, it was a quick downhill from there. If you think about it, it's sometimes it's only one or two generations removed at this point in some cases and others sure. it's like, yes. you know, oh, my grandparents wouldn't let my parents speak the language at all or whatever it is, but wow. So let's hear about your grandparents. Um, you could start with your dad's side, mom's side, great grandparents. Oh, my dad's side. Uh, yeah, my dad's side was uh, his mom. Uh, my my grandmother was uh, was the white bead person that I mentioned, and uh, uh, she she had uh, she and her husband the first Phil Cross there. She married, and uh, they had. A total of about ten children, and most there was only two or three of them that uh, you know survived infancy. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so that that was my grandmother and grandfather. Mm -hmm. uh, on and uh, and what were their names? Uh, Francis Elliot is is was my grandmother's name. Okay. Yeah, Caddo White Bee Caddo. Okay. And on my mother's side. Uh, uh, grandmother grew up on the on the Mayetta Indian Reservation or the Indian Reservation at Mayetta, Kansas, Potawatomi. Hmm. 
and uh, she married a a uh, half part half Irish person, and they had a whole bunch of kids, like ten. <laughs> and uh, she could, I mean, she could tell stories that would just curl her hair about their existence. There. Wow. Uh, they, I don't, I don't know how they survived. Like they what? Do you remember to, some of those? Well, uh, they, uh, he, he was a heavy drinker. And that was one of some of her favorite stories that he, he and his partners would get drunk and they'd just terrorize the reservation a while. But oh he did goodness. good work and so forth when he wasn't drinking. Yeah. And, but their main source of, of uh, survival was raising chickens. And uh, they would, uh, you know, it was a year-round undertaking. And so hmm. they, and they had gardens and so forth there. Yeah. yeah. But it was a very, very severe existence. Wow. Uh, and, and with that many children. And, and most of them got hauled off to uh, boarding schools. My mom, mom did. In fact, she came down. Her boarding school was at Pahuska, finally, where they were little kids, you know. Uh-huh. And they were really strict on, she said, they used to get up at daybreak and it all line up and then march here and there to do their classwork or their chores and so forth hmm. and, uh, wow you know, they, uh, she said they could talk their language Potawatomi, which she knew very well but it wasn't encouraged you know, they, mm -hmm. she never said they didn't they couldn't talk it but uh, it was you know it was uh, just the sister it's called a sister school hmm. and uh uh the nuns there and you know they didn't go out of their way encouraging cultural things right right, right. sounds like it and wasn't as bad as some of them may have been but it was still not great right and uh, my dad ended up at a, at a um catholic uh, church here in Anadarko, uh, oh. St. Michael's, is that the name of it? He went to school here when he was about in the sixth or seventh grade. And there they found out he was such an athlete that they, they told, uh, the, uh, Haskell, uh, Institute then. And so they came down and enlisted him and he became the football player. They said he could really run fast. And one of the older sisters I talked to years ago, he said, yeah, I remember him. And she oh was my you know, 90 years old. Wow. And, uh, she, she didn't say much about him. She said, oh, he could really run fast. And that's how he got And he was muscular and stocky, you know, and he was built for. Uh, do you have photos of him? Yeah, I have photos of, of his, uh, a whole lot of photos on our tractors in uh, on our farmland and then several of the in a group photos for the Haskell uh, okay yes please that is so fascinating and I'm really I sometime I've talked here and there about different athletes that were American Indian but at the same time I haven't done one single episode that has all of these great athletes in there um yeah they need more attention I think well, one side sideline to that is that uh, our Potawatomi ancestry uh, is uh, Jim Thorpe's uh, no way fa family. My um, my grandma's sister or first cousin, I'm not sure which, uh, was uh, was a the name was View, 
and uh, that that came to be the name of uh, Jim Thorpe's family, as he somehow, you know, wow, whatever twist and turns it took to, you know, when he grew up over here with the second fox. No so way. We're like second or third cousins to him. Oh my gosh! Isn't that crazy? Then, so your dad, who was a really fast runner. Just so, oh my gosh, I wonder how many peop- other people in the family were fast runners. That's crazy. Well, I wasn't very fast, but I was really tricky. You know what I mean? Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> Shifting. <laughs> <laughs> That's neat though. I mean, who knows? There could have been other people even in the family who, if they were given the opportunity, maybe they could have also been a whole entire slew of folks out there, Thorpes and uh, Crosses, I don't know, that could all run. Anything more about your grandparents, great-grandparents? Do you know anything about the ancestors that go way back? On my dad's side here, they, uh, my grandfather and grandmother had this nice piece of land there. It's, uh, it straddled a creek, Cobb Creek, mm-hmm. and uh, it was fertile, so they, they raised crops. And uh, my grandfather raised horses that he sold to the uh, army. Mm-hmm. And he, he was quite an enterprising guy. And uh, so they they were prominent there in that area. And we ended up with one old one horse that had been a farm had been an army horse that we rode around a great big tall sorrel red coated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he was ornery. I tell you, you could <laughs> only my dad could really handle him. The girls rode him around every now and then. But uh, sometimes they'd come back and said he had thrown them off and gone <laughs> somewhere, you know. So we had quite an industrious family there. My dad went started in just a little school. I mean, just one of those one rumors, first grade through sixth or seventh, then when he went to uh, St. Michael's here. So they were able to make do. And when, when allotment came around, see, they were there probably. I think my grandmother was born in 1886. So okay, in that period is when they you know, got together and settled there. And then when allotment came, they said, "We're on." They show them a map and said, "That's it right there," and that's our allotment. That's what we want. That's how. It, I hope to write a uh, book on what happened on allotment day because mm-hmm. there was a lot of stuff going on. You know, some people weren't allotted and didn't want an allotment, but they were given one anyway. Huh. And uh, so I can imagine, you know, the day of allotment, some people would come by and I guess they'd line up and say, okay, we didn't want it to, to, to begin with, as most tribes didn't. But they said, well, you got to take it. And, you know, where are you? And here's the creek. And, you know, most of the allotments fall wow. these streams straight up from here huh. up to, uh, you know, all in this area. Mm-hmm. So I've got the original allotment maps and you can just see it flowing wow in one of those areas so it would have been momentous I, mean, I don't know how else to say it um yeah big important event selecting your loan or not wow. selecting one and you get one over here's your allotment over here right Everybody here you go you have to hope that it's there. something you like right and uh, it would be interesting to see who didn't want one but got one anyway i've never I've done a lot of work on, if you go to my website, I have a document called uh, the 
Indian reservation and allotment era in, in uh, Oklahoma, but in mainly it is the east, the western side of the state, the, the tribes out here. Mm-hmm. Every allotment I've got on that document. Wow. If know about it, then uh, yeah. they can trace their ancestry directly to it. Here's the map. There it is. And not only the map, but the ledger that describes the person, uh, gender, age, family, you know, like a father and so forth. I never really pictured in my head, okay, they all stood in this line on enrollment day for the Dawes rolls. And they Uh had to go in there and sometimes they had to bring a witness to say, yeah, this is my cousin. And yes, they are Cherokee or whatever. Yeah. You mentioned to me once that you were intrigued by the drum. How so? Well, it's been part of my life from uh, early, early on. One of my first uh, recollections is being at a uh, community center where I grew up at Colony, Oklahoma. And I remember I was sleeping in the car parked right outside the building. And uh, I heard... uh, 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 drumming and songs and I remember raising up and looking towards the lights in the uh, in the uh, community center there mm-hmm. and uh, that's always stuck with me and I, maybe that w- was instrumental in in uh, in planting something deep in me as uh, uh, from then on and and uh, we regularly had a uh, uh, almost weekly Saturday evening had um, songs and dances. Uh, these were Shine and Arapaho. And then I'd regularly go to uh, Caddo dances over near Binger and uh, where our uh, Caddo Nation is headquartered now. So it's been a, a big part of my life. And as soon as I could uh, back in late high school I would sit at the drum occasionally but uh, and and you know try to follow along mm-hmm. and then some years later really mm-hmm. got into it and by going to the drum as often as I could and uh, uh, it's just a pleasant inspiring feeling to me to be at a drum drumming easily or or hitting the drum with, with force and being able to sing and lead songs has just been a, one of my great successes to me. Something I always wanted to uh, to do in a in a um, in a reasonably learned manner, and and have been able to do that. Sounds like you take a lot yes, of pride yes, in that. Yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it. I, I'm just I'm proud of. I have accomplished what I have in it, and uh, it's um, uh, it, it's just a great feeling. And, and when I hear songs now, you know, I think, oh yeah, I can sing that, I can drum that, and I often do get my drum out and and uh, drum and sing along with uh, with songs. So it just gives me a great sense of accomplishment and uh, uh, and and good feeling doing it. I feel it it has healing powers. A lot of Drummers uh, say they they experience uplifting, uh, uplifted uh, feelings and emotions, and feel like they're they're being healed at the drum. 
Interesting. Well, and what's so fascinating to me is, you know, I, I grew up hearing the drumming, but when I step back and think about like, let's say someone has never heard it before and is hearing it for the first time. Well, and, and even to someone who has been hearing it my whole life, it's fascinating to me that there is a rhythm. There is a, it's a song. It's a, it's a piece that you guys have all learned over time. There's a lot of traditional and standard pieces out there. And then some that are more obscure, but it almost sounds like, well, how do they know where they are in the piece? But you guys always know where you are. I've never seen anyone mess up or get out of the rhythm. How, how do you learn that? It's been passed down, correct? Just, just orally, you know, not. Well, that, that's, a, that's, a good, that's a good point. Uh, in, in fact, uh, most of the songs that are sung are, are chant songs uh, and a lot of hey-yo and hey-ya and so forth. But they have a, a definite uh, pattern of the start of the chorus and ending and the drumbeats. And, and each song, many of the same songs, say intertribal or, uh, or often called war dance songs, have the same style of starting and, uh, and uh, heavy drum beats and so forth. And uh, you can't, I don't know there's any way of learning it other than to be there and listening and, and then repeating it. Right. Uh, but uh, there are, right. there's a pattern to these songs, just a definite, definite pattern, starting, middle, chorus, and ending. Okay. And, uh, once you get to okay. down, then, then uh, you, you, you learn the, the chant and, and the syllables to it. And mm -hmm. uh, you've, you got it made and you said, yeah, I could start that one. You know, that, that's what most people, drummers say, you know, are, are looking at each song and saying, now I'm going to learn this and I'm going to be able to start it, which is a whole lot different than following because you got to have the right tone and pitch and so forth to start and, uh, uh, and, and the, the chant part of it. Uh, and uh, it's, I've heard a lot of people just starting out, said, "Man, how frightened they were to try to try to start." Oh, I one. bet. Yeah. Was well, that's that's really interesting. What else can you tell us about the drum? Well, um, I, I may have mentioned this earlier, but uh, one of the things I really regret is that I didn't sit down and, uh, especially after I got out of high school and where I was learning songs and uh, being at the drum. Uh, although I was away at school and then away at a job and later on, but then I was not able to sit down with uh, with some of the premier drum drumhead singers of Caddo and uh, mm -hmm. and Kiowa and, and Apache and Comanche and uh, Cheyenne Arapaho and other tribes. You know, I I just think of some old guys. I said, man, I wish I could have been there. So yeah with them listen to them and learn how they sang it because some sing them a little different you know not much but uh so i have that great regret and i tell kids that i said you you may one day say man i wish i'd have sat down with phil cross because he knew a lot of these songs you know and he sang them well and uh, here i am now and he's gone and uh, you know i'm i'm sitting here saying i you know i could have been part of his life there and, and learned from him that's what I tell them anyway. Yeah. So I hope that anyone, any young person who's listening to this right now will 
will really consider that, that, you know, sit down and learn all you possibly can. It can't hurt you. And you just might end up wanting to use those skills later. It's good advice. Thanks, Phil. So, you know, tell us about, you know, your Caddo and I know that you go to these dances and you do the drumming, but can you tell us about the dances themselves? Well, we have uh, retained um, some um, eight or 10 different dances, uh, many of them named for, for animals, um, bear dance, fish dance, uh, and, and that sort of thing. And uh, uh, many of them, virtually all of them are mixing dancers, where uh, at some point a uh, man or lady will join in and they will dance and finish out the, the dance. And uh, uh, they are, we have a, a generally soft beat. In fact, some, uh, some old caddos I just said, they've had a drumstick all their life, same stick. Wow. Uh, a wooden <laughs> dowel, you know, a wooden uh, uh, shaft. Right. Maybe dogwood shaft and uh, wrapped with leather at the end. Because we we uh, drum gently, and mm-hmm. it's opposed to uh, uh, the inner tribal that hit the drum as hard as they can hit it. Hmm. And I've done that myself too. And sometimes when I'm giving talks on drumming, I will uh, mention the difference between our gentle drumming and, and the inner tribal. You know, the, many of the big powwow. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, drumming you hear and and I will tease my Plains Indian fellows that said uh, I said I said they sound like a bunch of wild Indians you know and of course it's fun for us to talk like that tease ourselves <laughs> oh, there's so know. much banter and, uh, <laughs> I, I get I get uh, I get chuckles from that so uh, and uh, we have uh, just in general uh, nice, easy steps uh, and, uh, and circling the arena, and uh, some of the some of these vary in in length. We have uh, our main turkey dance, which could last an hour. In the old days, they lasted uh, probably a couple of hours because there were so many songs. We don't sing that many uh, songs hmm. now, um, and some of them are just. Uh, Oh, probably five, less than five minutes, maybe 10 minutes at the most. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, I, a friend of mine described these as, these songs are, are uh, held in close to our hearts and they unite young and old, um, infirm and healthy, and um and and bring us together yeah i'm uh, thinking especially with the you know the dances yeah i'm thankful that the dances and the songs and the drumming have survived everything that has happened to the caddo tribe and and all of our tribes over time 
We're going to pause for a moment to hear from Lowell Edmonds, also a Caddo gentleman from my hometown in Anadarko, Oklahoma. And fun fact, when I was a teenager, I was homeschooled. So during the day, I would stop my schoolwork to go into um, this Christian bookstore and cafe owned by some sweet folks from our church, Max and Johnita Talley. And my sister and I waited on Mr. Lowell when he'd come into the art cafe. So anyway, Lowell will tell us a little bit about his dad, who was a well-known Indian drummer and singer, and about the Caddo turkey dance. I, I was reading about how the Caddo say their creation started when they emerged in Louisiana out of a cave called Chacanina, or the place of crying. Moon was the name of their leader, and he told his people to not look back. And an elder man, when they were coming out of the cave, was carrying a pipe, a fire, and a drum. And so these are the items that are sacred to the Caddo people. So Lowell Dwayne Edmonds Sr., right? Yes, ma'am. That's your daddy. Right. And I had the pleasure to Wimpy, my... Wimpy Edmonds is what Wimpy? everybody called him. Wimpy. <laughs> and by the way, so your nickname's Juju, and your dad was... His was Wimpy, his nickname, right? Uh-huh. Um, and then they used a lot of wood and clay tools. And even when people died, the men and women were buried with the tools because they saw them as sacred. You know, they helped them with cooking the meals and and carving things and, and all that. And I also thought it was interesting that the Caddo decorated their bodies. So they would embellish with painting their skin and they had ear piercing and hair decorations and, of course, braids. And then they'd adorn their hair with um, bird feathers and animal fur and tattooing. Um, so they were very decorated people, apparently. My dad, like I said, he was keeper of the songs, so he was at all the powwows. He'd done the flag song, the uh, bell dance songs, quapaw mm-hmm. dance, uh, snake dance. I mean, all the dances. Wow. He, he he knew all the dances, and he and he did that. And uh, that's just, that was in, in Britain, you know, because of Grandpa Houston. My grandpa, he would, you know, he done the bell dance and all those song dances too and that that's you know like i said because dad he knew all the funeral songs too and at the funeral mm-hmm. he, he cut loose with you know yeah. songs and and to me that that's that i kind of went i would kind of went that way but, but i always go to funerals and mm-hmm. and uh i i don't sing that much because i i can't sing his quality and then I, I feel like i'm not i'm not that I can't live up to you know the standards you know that my dad had you know because it's very respectful of you, but I, I bet you're a lot better than you think. I mean, I'll sing. <laughs> I'll sing in my bedroom, but I'll obviously in songs <laughs> in the know, shower. Yeah, yeah, when nobody's around me, you know. But, right. Yeah, but I mean, I just, I just didn't don't feel I could live up to the standards that he had. That you know, everybody Aww. that's wimpy. You know, yeah. that's wimpy. And, you He's know, well known in these parts. Yeah, he, wasn't he? that's what I'm saying. Yeah. And, that's and, right. and Grandpa and uh, Grandma, he was married to uh, Grandpa Houston, and uh, she's got a beautiful name. I can't remember it. Spybook. Anyway, I, I was real close to her because when she passed away, she passed away in the house, and I we were help getting wood and stuff, and they wouldn't let us go in the house, and I mm-hmm. guess she had a heart attack. And, and then I went in. They said there was a chicken leg there, and they said here. Uh, Juju, here, this is for you. And I said, I guess it was what she was going to have for supper. And oh, so they so, gave you the chicken she pat- <laughs> Yeah. Oh. And, uh, but Grandpa uh, 
He, I don't know how tired he was married <laughs> and all those kids. He got but, around with the ladies. Yeah, uh, everybody. I mean, he, he was he was such an awesome man, mm-hmm. and when, and when he he passed away, uh, he stayed with us. And I I, I had he laid sometimes and he'd kick his leg, you know. Yeah. Then in the morning I'd wake up and he'd be hitting on the wall singing morning dance song. Really? That's yeah, so he, cool. And I'd be laying there listening to him. He'd be hitting the wall singing. Wow. And then at nighttime, same thing, you know. And Yeah. Did you it, love it? Oh, yeah. I missed it so much I after bet. he passed away. Yeah, when he what, passed. Do you, do you know what year he passed? No. In the 90s, I think. Yeah. But I did uh, I did my, uh, I did dad's funeral when he passed away. I did my dad's funeral down here. Mm-hmm. And then in Darko, I did uh, my Aunt Cordelia. That was his sister. She had she had like eight kids, and her, one, of her boy, one of her boys played ball with Johnny Bench. She was oh wow, same age the famous Johnny, Johnny Bench from Binger, <laughs> Oklahoma. And you know, you talked about how proud you are of your dad about the turkey dances and how he would do the drumming and the singing and all that. And I was doing a little research on it, and it said there were homecoming celebrations when the warriors and the hunters would return from you know warring or hunting, <laughs> and um. So the the hunting party would begin their their journey home, and then a runner would be sent ahead to tell the women about how well they did and their good fortune while they were on their hunts and such. And then um, a little bit more information on it, which I thought was so interesting. So this is actually, believe it or not, straight from Wikipedia. So <laughs> um, I'm told from Wikipedia that it's one of the most important traditional dances among Caddo people. And as you mentioned to me before, Lowell, that the women, um, they will wear, you know, turkey, is the turkey feathers? Or what, what does their regalia look I, like? They have that comb, that... that like a crown. Hair, crown, yeah. Mm-hmm. And have the, that, their dresses there. I can't, I don't know what you call them. Now, my, uh, my uh, auntie, Charlie, and they, and they all, a lot of them, I mean, they still do... Uh, make dresses and you know oh, make patterns and do it, but they have and like dust cuts and just just different kind of stuff. And the women know, but I don't because I I don't I don't, yeah. I, don't <laughs> I, right. just, I just never you know was around turkey dancing. I mean to get to know the terms and everything. I mean I just yeah. went down and watched them and you know and kind of admire them you know because they they be dressed really nice with mirrors. Mm. Down the ribbons down the back, and mm-hmm. like I said, and they make those dresses and moccasins, and yeah, then they wear those hair. Well, Wikipedia says the dance takes place in the afternoon and it's finished by sunsets when turkeys return to the roost. Caddo's traditionally founded their villages and camps near turkey roosts because the turkeys served as sentinels, creating noises when people approached. Very smart. So, but your dad would do the drumming for when. Everyone was dancing, and yeah, they they, yeah. they, they danced around them. They had the drum right there, and they would kind of like what they, they showed you with Grandpa and the wash telling mm-hmm. out to sitting you. around, and yeah. It says in the day of Caddo dances, the turkey dance is the first one performed, and it has several phases. So in the past, the da- women danced around a pole, and then during the third phase, the women cluster around the men drumming in the center of the dance area. During the final phase, the women dancers get to choose male dance partners. 
The dances concluded with a flag song and the lowering of the U.S. flag in honor of Caddo veterans. I love that. Uh, and then the dance movements of the women may have been inspired by Turkey movement. So I bet that they, looks they interesting. <laughs> oh, yeah. There are some of them women that can really dance. They, I mean, they, 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 they're good. They're yeah, good. I bet. Yeah, they're good. Well, I, I admire them. I bet. You got to have a lot of energy, too. <laughs> to oh, yeah, because a lot of times it'd be, it'd be hot. I almost see how they dance and it'd be so hot and oh, yeah. try to take a break, you know, and give them mm-hmm. some fluid, you know. and Yeah, yeah it, for sure. Well, and, you know, Binger, which is where you, you live in Anadarko now, but you lived a good portion of your life in Binger. Binger Y. The Binger Y. Binger Y. And really, Binger is the, um, that is the headquarters, basically, of the Caddo tribe, I believe, right? Yeah, well, we're just five five miles east of Binger. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's closer, closer than Koger or... Yeah, <laughs> true. <laughs> or than any of those other places. That, yeah. And that's that's usually where they they hold these turkey dances. So if anyone ever travels to Binger, Oklahoma, be sure to go during the turkey dance. I don't know month or time of year when they do it. And so now I want to, since we we're talking about regalia today, I'm loving Lowell's ribbon shirt. So tell me about the ribbon shirt and who made it for you. Okay, uh, this the shirt when my dad passed away, uh, his wife is is uh, ex. He's well, their ex now. But anyway, uh, she gave me a, one of his shirts, and it, it's a it's an older one. You can tell it's an older one. Yeah. And uh, and then uh, when I had uh, when I was going to the VA, uh, I'd go to meetings at the VA, and I helped them with their powwow. Their uh, they have one in November. Their Thanksgiving powwow in November, and then they have. Uh, they have uh, Red Earth. They have mm-hmm. Red Earth in Oklahoma City. And That's a big one. Yeah, and they used to uh, parade, and uh, I was part of that group, so I, I didn't have a shirt. So I talked to my auntie, Charlene, Charlene Brown mm-hmm. Hodge, and uh, her and her friends, They she's got a couple of friends that they do a lot of. They make blankets and stuff like that. I mean, they're they're good. Mm-hmm. And I and I asked I, she, I asked her about a shirt, and she said if I got the material, she'd make it for me. So nice. So yeah, so I, I, I got it and everything, and she said what colors, and I told her I said the shirt blue be fine. I said, but the uh, the I said you're the you're the seamstress. You're the you know you know what colors look good and what on the ribbons. Yeah, and the yeah. ribbons and stuff, and and then she managed she. She brought it to me. Say, so I look. I said, "Man, that's beautiful." It really and I've is only, it's so I've, nicely done. Too. I've only worn it probably about four times since yeah. I got it during the Red Earth and mm-hmm. powwow uh, in Oklahoma City at the VA. Yeah, uh, I used to hang out. Well, since I had my degree in sociology and I got a degree, mm-hmm. uh, I'd go to the uh, meetings at the VA. And yeah. the lady let me sit in since I had a degree and everything. I could, because a lot of guys are up there and they're they're struggling. They're trying to, you know, kick alcohol or drugs or yeah. whatever's bothering them, and they have a hard time. And we sit with them and talk with them. And they used to, to little, you know, you're not part, you have, you're not a part of the group per se, but you know, you got your degree and everything, and you mm-hmm. you. You're trying to help everybody. He said, "You know, you just come on in. You know, you're yeah. all right." But 
Yeah, it, um, I mean, it hurts to see those guys struggling. I mean, I did. I struggled for alcohol, with alcohol for a long time. And Sensitive subject, but it's definitely a higher rate in the Native American culture, um, which I think has to do somewhat with historical trauma and, you know, some of the terrible atrocities that happened in many years past. But what are you, what's your take on it? I, I, everybody, everybody's different to me. Uh, I mean, like, I drink alcohol, and I—I I mean, I—I'd get pulled over way at two o'clock in the morning driving my Camaro, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> but uh, and so all I did was drink beer. I mm-hmm. didn't drink whiskey. I didn't drink wine. I didn't do pot. I did all I did was drink three point two beer, mm-hmm. like two three o'clock in the morning, back on the back roads, you know. Right. And uh, that—that's—that's that's all I did. But then you have others that drink whiskey or, you know, wine or whatever, you know, and they they that's they prefer or, you know, a lot of them like to smoke and do that. But like I said, I it was strange with me because all I did was drink beer. I wouldn't drink anything else mm-hmm. and and that was enough to get me Interesting. <laughs> yeah, it was enough yeah. to get me and and then I I just quit. I just quit that one time. I just uh, and uh, oh Oh nine, uh, yeah, June June six oh nine. I just just stopped. You did. You just 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 stopped. Yeah, wow. just stopped and haven't had a drink since then. And you remember that day, June I'm, six, June two thousand nine. It's a good yeah. day. Congratulations. Yeah, and I'm sure it. you know they say to take it day by day. So I don't want to <laughs> jinx anything. But I no, you're not going to jinx it. <laughs> If I hadn't done it by now, I'm, that's I'm, true. No, you are on a good path. I'm an old good man path. now. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any words for anyone that might be struggling with addiction today? A message of hope or anything? Uh, well, you know, uh, but I, I did. I sometimes I went long. Sometimes I went a long time, and then I just had to go drink. You know, mm-hmm. or, and then sometimes I just drank like you know a week or two or something. You know, and and then. Uh, like I said, uh, I, I even I, I did AA when I wasn't when I wasn't drinking. Mm-hmm. I used to work in the AA uh, in Anadarko. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. I used to have do five when I just go well when I did end up quitting, and uh, I had five. Uh, I'd do five meetings. I'd run five meetings during the daytime. Then I'd go in wow. at night and run two Tuesday and Thursday run meetings for those that had. It had to have, like just quarter point it. You had to have those, mm-hmm. and a lot of them couldn't get off in the daytime because they had day jobs. So yeah. I'd go in. Uh, it was Four Tribes Consortium. I used to go in there and uh, work on Tuesday and Thursday nights and sign papers for those that needed it. You know, because mm-hmm. you're you're supposed to have so many signatures and stuff. So uh, yeah, I did that for a long time, and then and then when. Uh, they stop that uh, that position, and it's just like and uh, it's like I had nothing to do, so I I just went back, started drinking, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm like, mm-hmm. and then that one time I just I said, no, this is it. I do this on board and just stop, just cold turkey, you know, just June, June and night, and uh, wow, yeah, never looks back, huh? 
have, to this day haven't That's had great. any alcohol at all or anything. It's definitely something to be proud of. It's it's a God thing. <laughs> yes, it is. It has to be because I don't know how anybody else gets yeah, there. I guess it, to each his own. But man, it's going to be a hard thing to yeah. to kick. But people remember you. I mean, they'll bring it up and remember when you you know remember mm-hmm. when you you know. I said, well, that yeah, that was a that long was, time. That was yeah, that was before. You know, I said. You know, I don't do that no more, you know, but, yeah. you know, I'll talk with you about it, but I, I don't do it, right. you know, so. Yeah, stop trying to well, pigeonhole me back in that you place. You think you're too good because, I know, I don't think I'm too good. I said, you know, I just, it's just time for me to, to, to quit. You know, it's it's something interesting that you say it that way that I think there's people that can, they probably have good intentions, but they can hold us back like, oh, you um, oh, you have so much money now, or oh, you are so educated now, or oh, you don't drink anymore. You think you're better than us, and it's like that—that that, you know makes you want to. That part right there, what you're saying. Yeah, right. It's like that, don't that, hold me back. That was to let in. You think you're better than us. You know, yeah. you're not better. You know, and and that's not even that's not even the thought, but that's what they use to try to get get to you. Or exactly. You think you're better than us. You think you're so good. You know. You know. Uh, I'm just trying to. Right. I'm just trying to live day, you know, day yeah. to day, you know. So, because there's think, nothing. I mean, there's no uh, guarantee that. Hey, I might go drink a beer or something, or mm-hmm. start drinking again. Then, then what do you say? I mean, <laughs> right? You know, right? But you know, so far, praise the Lord, I haven't. You know, that's great. Yeah, I mean, to close as I came, I went my granddaughter's graduation in Carnegie mm-hmm. I went and I was living in the city so I drove by myself on the interstate I got there to the gym uh, to the auditorium and mm-hmm. watched so, so when I I gave her a present we went to where they were eating and that I had beer all over the place and so oh. I'm looking at beer and I'm and I haven't you know drank since 09 and so I get back in my car and I'm leaving Carnegie and I pull over at store up there going out by the Mexican restaurant going out of town right and they're having an Indian rodeo and all the Indians are coming in buying mm-hmm. six packs and everything and, and I'm standing there with my tea and I'm like and then some says <laughs> with my tea <laughs> yeah I was it my, sweet tea or regular tea that's uh, sweet, important yeah. quote okay thank you we can still be friends go ahead <laughs> and, uh, and and then I'm like I'm looking at it and then I hear Hey, you're going to the interstate back to Oklahoma City. It's dark. It's after nine o'clock. It's mm-hmm. ten o'clock. No one's going to see you drinking. Right. You know, just you can get your beer this time, just this time, and drink some beer on Devil the way on home. your shoulder. And I'm like, yeah, you know, to put that tea back. Like, no, <laughs> no, don't do it. Don't do it. So yeah. I got my tea and and hit went. You know, uh, north of, north and hit uh, yeah. interstate by Hydro and Hinton, yeah, and came on back. But that's the closest I ever come to drinking again. Yeah. It was because of my grandbaby's uh, hmm. uh, graduation, celebrating with all the relatives and stuff. You oh know, yeah, it, I can't imagine. It's got to be hard. Uh, it, was, it was then for some reason. I mm-hmm. mean, it's just something triggered. Just trying to trying just... to trick. Just young trying to get tricked or something. Yeah, yeah. So what what do you think about I mean you are you live in an area that is 
there are more Native Americans there than anywhere in the world, actually, statistically and per capita. Do you think that this is as great of an issue as I read about when I'm looking at statistics and and some of the trauma that's been passed down and to the Native American in the within the Native American population, um, you know, alcoholism or, or addiction in general. I mean, there's the casinos, there's the um, drugs, there's alcohol, and again, it can hit any population. But we know that statistically, it is pretty high. And I do think that there are valid reasons for it. Um, I also think that it can be conquered, and you're a great example of that. But do you agree that there is kind of a a widespread issue there? I don't know. I mean, we all have our we all have our own opinions and everything. And uh, it, was, it was I couldn't figure out. I couldn't figure out because when I was in Oklahoma City, I I was living in a, a friendship home, which is a, a a home home for people that homeless people, mm-hmm. and there was twenty one of us guys staying there, and there's like three of us in each each yeah. room. You know, we had to share a bathroom, and you know, yeah. and uh, and I was that's I was in there, and uh, but I had stopped, and uh, I, I don't know. I, it's hard to explain. It's it's uh, I I didn't have. And I, I'd go to Bricktown, walk around Bricktown, go in a mixing restaurant and eat, sit in the bar. Mm-hmm. Or I'd go down to the bowling alley where everybody's drinking and and drink tea. And they said, Juju, you want some more tea? They called it Juju tea. Juju, Juju tea. tea. <laughs> and uh, and well, that's when they had like thunder would be that thunder night when they had oh, when they had a pizza. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I'd sit there and that, the people were drinking around me. Party and, and I had just, no problem. No problem. Yeah. And I'd go up to all those restaurants, like Buffalo Wild Wings, and all those places, and uh, and never, never, I was there, never was even uh, have the urge to, you know, not even, you know, and I, it was, it was, I don't know, it it uh, stopped me is what it did because I'm like, how can I go out and Used to go out and drink and get a case of beer and ice it down and go drink it and then now I don't even want to drink. I don't, I don't even. Mm-hmm. I don't even care. I'm not even thinking about wanting to. You know, and I'm like, I was. I I just there. Sometimes just wonder, God. You know what? What 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 causes? What's this now? I used to drink like crazy, like there's no tomorrow, and then now I'm like, I don't even. I don't even think. I don't even think about. It. I don't even. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, it used to baffle me. I mean, I still, it, to me, it's a God thing. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> that, For sure. you know, and I mean, to me, I don't know. I mean, I'm not, I'm not the smartest guy and, uh, but, <laughs> but I've been sober for almost, uh, what, 09, this is what, 21? 21. Going to be yeah. 12 years. Well, it's past, yeah, last month it was 12 years mm-hmm. without a drink. It's a victory, definitely yeah. a victory. You ain't lying, it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, what else would you like to know about your family or your culture or you know anything related to I don't know your day to day as a Native American or anything else? Um, I don't know. I'm really like over. I mean, I've witnessed so much stuff 
uh, I, like I, I didn't finish telling you, but uh, when I was telling you, my dad, where he used to uh, live at, uh, just down the road from the uh, casino now, and uh, when when uh, I was going to church, and I'd go by dad's, and I'd, I'd go in the house, and he said, what's that you got? And I said, anointing oil. He said, what's that for? <laughs> I said, to anoint people and pray for them. He said, really? I said, yeah. And uh, and we'd go eat. we breakfast, I mean, lunch with them. And there'd be probably about three or four families come up there and eat together, you know. Mm-hmm. And then and he'd ask me that. Then I'd walk up and I'd, he opened the door. He had a sliding door, a patio door, you know. And yeah. He, he had, a, had his wood burning stuff. He loved burning in the wintertime. You know how old Indians are. Mm-hmm. And he said, did you bring your oil? And I said, no. He said, oh, okay. And then uh, my little brother, he was going to church too. Well, he was all mostly going. But dad wasn't. <clears throat> and then that, when he went in, he, he said, did you bring your oil? And I said, yeah, why? You? He said, oh, I was just wondering. And you know why? He ended up giving his life to the Lord, and he started having church in his den. Yeah. He started wow. having everybody would go up there because he knew all the songs. I mean, he yeah. nature's been up there singing and praising the Lord. And and just by taking your little oil with you, you know, and just, mm-hmm. you know, he said, what is that? I said, Lord, in the world, what does it do? Well, what's it for? Well, have to pray for people in the Lord, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And then my cousin, uh, Uncle Lewis, his brother, he had a daughter, and and she went going to church, and I, I ended up ended up baptizing her at Fort Cobb Lake. That's and, great. And then she got saved, and her sister got saved, and then it, the whole household got saved. You know, that's so just, cool. Uh, yeah, I, I baptized that. my little brother at Fort Cobb. But Midge, I baptized her. I baptized his uh, Incanishi boy, which means white boy. <laughs> <laughs> or as you, you said about my brother-in-law mayo where's mayo earlier i didn't say mayo what did you say then i thought you said mayo i was wondering why you was laughing what did you say i can't remember but it wasn't mayo okay. i was wondering why you was laughing oh yeah like, she and i both were laughing hard okay anyway go ahead <laughs> sidetracked mayo with pickles <laughs> best kind oh my gosh <laughs> but anyway i know i know where y'all grew up at. i mean i know where y'all come from and y'all used, have, used, used to have that uh store and lunches over there yeah you don't remember becoming well, i do were... no i do actually no, you don't. You just say no. That I really you don't do. Skyler and I both do. We well, Skyler, yeah. But, I mean, that yeah. was my buddy. That's who I used yeah. to talk to, <laughs> hang out with. But I, I mean, I knew you was there, but I didn't pay much attention to you because you just. Well, I started working there when I was right, twelve. <laughs> with that stringy hair. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was a feral child. <laughs> feral. Uh, wild. Oh. <laughs> Meaning I. Anyway, so <laughs> I was a good kid. I was just a little crazy. So <laughs> when, uh, what for my listeners, what Lowell's talking about is that my sister and my mom and I used to work at this it was Sea of Galilee Christian bookstore and the Ark Cafe. So in the front was a bookstore and then in the back was 
uh, a cafe. So I would work at the bookstore and then go wait tables in the cafe part where my sister also waited tables and my mom worked in the back making the sandwiches. And so Lowell would come in and, and see us. What did you order there? Do you remember there was the pita pouch? Like, um, I remember there was that. A, it was but called the kangaroo. That's what it was called. Um, you also have kangaroo? Is that what I that, ate? The, the pita pouch was called a kangaroo, <laughs> but I don't remember what you ate. Probably Skylar was waiting on you. Probably. But there were, there was the giraffe. I think um, you were just in the way. <laughs> Did she pay you to say this? Is my sister here somewhere? <laughs> oh, but we had so much fun there. And we always kept the sweet tea coming because there was always a lot of need for sweet tea. Then uh, we had a lot of regulars come in and out, Virginia Reimer and um, Larry from the lumber yard. We always called him Larry Turkey. Yeah, they're all gone too now, aren't they? I know. It's yeah. really sad. Yeah. So many of them gone. and. They were good people. They were like our community. I mean, again, the same people came in every day. You know, there was probably like 10 of them that came in every day. And then, of course, there'd be a, a slew of other people here and there. But, it's kind of like the eatery is now. You know, yeah. you have the same. And exactly. That's I love that place. You at. That's, that's right. At. So, so yeah, the other day, Lowell, or my family and I, we were eating with our good friend Lonnie in uh, the what's called the eatery in downtown Anadarko. And Lowell was in there, and I kept staring at him going, I know the face. How do I know the face? And well, then, I'm used to being stared at. You know, <laughs> the ladies love Lowell. Thank you very much. Thank like, you very much. <laughs> honka, honka, boom, love, baby. You told me you were going to bring your Elvis out. <laughs> And then, so I basically stalked Lowell as he was leaving the restaurant. I'm like, hello, can I talk to you for a second? I'm used to being stopped <laughs> by pretty women, so that's all right. It's a rough life. Somebody's yeah, got to lead it, right? <laughs> yeah, so when he, uh, it, but he turned, you, Lowell, you turned around and you looked at me and you're like, you're Rachel Shoffner from me. Hog Creek. <laughs> I scared you. <laughs> ah, why is this woman following me? <laughs> but it was really interesting because you turned around and I said, my name is, and you said, you're Rachel from Hog Creek. <laughs> like, yeah, I lived in Hog Creek. Outside did you say what my brother told me? Did I tell you that? No. I, he said, we changed my tire. And then uh, he, he said, uh, I was talking and I said, I seen Tina and her old man the other day. And he said, where at? I told him, he said, oh yeah. She told me she saw you. I said, really? She said, he said, who's this Rachel girl? I said, what? He said, <laughs> Word gets around. He said, Rachel girl, who's who's that? I said, uh, I said, you know, they, they used to run that restaurant over there. And he said, oh, that? I said, yes. Yeah. He said, yeah, Tina, come out. Said, who's that Rachel girl? Who's that, who's that girl? He wants to want to talk to Uncle Lowell. Anyway. Yeah, how funny is that? Keep with your story. Go ahead. No, that's it. I like Just I thought it was better. funny that we ran into each other, that, that you remembered me. So that's funny because I remembered your face. But anyway, good it's time. Always, so was the face. Yeah, it's always the face. <laughs> well, this has been a lot of fun, and I've learned a lot from you, and it's been a very enjoyable experience. I hope you have felt the same, and um, hopefully we'll get a chance to continue talking and <laughs> sharing information over time. So thank you for your time. Yoko Ki. Thank you, Mr. Lowell, for sharing about your dad and about the turkey dance, and we wish you well. So, Phil, not only are you a mechanical engineer and happen to be the only Caddo remaining who can completely build the Caddo-style grass-thatched house, but you also just so happen to be an expert flute maker made from River Cane. 
you study foods of the early Caddo, you brain tan, the Indian method, of course, you create buffalo rawhide, parfletch items, and rawhide shields, and you're a bow maker. Yeah. So, what have I been doing with all my time? <laughs> wow. Um, so, thanks for making us all look pretty lazy, Mr. Phil. So let's talk about your bow making, because I think that is so fascinating. And for our listeners, Mr. Phil here has been featured as a bow maker in a number of television programs, including Is This a Great State or What on Channel 4, Oklahoma City, and Outdoor Oklahoma on OETA. So tell us more about it. How do you learn these skills? Who taught you or did you teach yourself? Tell us more. Uh, well, it's been part of my life since. Uh, as young as I can remember. I remember making bows as, uh, uh, you, you know, five or six-year-old. Just the simplest a stick with a string on it. Mm -hmm. But I had people, elders around me, both Caddo and, and uh, Cheyenne Arapo, who made um, these top-of-the-line uh, bows out of Bodark, also called Osage Orange. Mm. And uh, it... Uh, and so I had a bow in my hand. In fact, uh, uh, the tradition in, in former times and, in, and into historic times here uh, was that a, at, at a boy, birth of a, of a boy uh, would have a uh, small bow placed in his, uh, uh, in his surroundings and blankets and, and crib and so forth. And uh, then when we die, uh, our favorite bow is put in the coffin with us. It's, uh, it's practiced a bit yet today, but, but oh, yeah, it's, it's kind of no long. That's way. so special. Anyway, uh, Very special. The uh, the name of the wood Bodark was given to us by French explorers who came and they they were just gushing over the fact that the Caddo's down in where they met us down in Louisiana and. Uh, in our homelands, Texas and Oklahoma, Arkansas, that uh, they had the finest bows. They mentioned them and, and, and that the, the bows were, uh, other Indian tribes would come and trade for them and trade for the wood to make their own bows. So, our, so I was been attached to that, in, you know, to, in, back into historic times. And, and it just stayed with me and as I got a little older and I could make the bows that uh, were taught me to make the, the top of the line hunting bows or mm -hmm. target bows. Uh, I learned that from them and, uh, um, and, and later on, you know, many people accepted my bows around here and I've sold some internationally and nationally as, as some of the finest they've, these people say that they've ever had. So it's been a long, um, long uh, companion of mine. And um, I have a wall full of, of them here that, I, that I've kept. And every now and then I look up and just remember each one, how I made it, how, what it, you know, its specifications and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and also we've had uh, target shoots, bow shoots around here. Uh, and uh, participating and uh, most well all of them uh, are bow dark bows some made by the fellow shooting them and I've made some of them so it's a tradition that's still strong in, uh, in Indian country and others others also 
for the non-Indians have a lot of bow shoots and uh, clubs that uh, mm-hmm. that mainly uh, center on the on the bow dark wood. It's called Osage Orange too. That's its commercial name. Oh, really? Okay. So, and then I assume to shape the bow, you're probably getting it wet, or or just tell us how it's made. Curious. Well, uh, many of many bows are made from a, like like a six foot long uh, branch or tree trunk that's about six inches in diameter. If you go much smaller than that, um, it, it's uh, the grain isn't good, and mm-hmm. you let it dry out anywhere from six months to a year and beyond, uh, and then and then and you split the logs out and. Um, start trimming them down until, until I have something like about two inches wide uh, or say, or three or four inches wide and two inches deep. And then I just carve the bow out of that. Uh, it's a, the bow is, wood is very, very hard and you have to know what you're doing and, and how to follow the grain and a number of rules uh, mm-hmm. so that your bow won't break and, and meets and, and can stay stay straight and doesn't deform and, and uh, lose, its, uh, lose its power. It's a long process. And I have a, a, a book that I made many years ago for the Boy Scouts that a lot of people still use. And if huh. people want to get in touch with me, I'll send them a copy of it. It's, it's just a booklet, but it, it's a, I had a lot of people use it and say, yep, that does the trick. Wow. So it's more of an art wow, than I wow. even thought. I, I can't imagine breaking it when you've spent months to let it dry out and you know all the things that you have to go through. That would be so disappointing to break it in the middle of it. Has that ever happened? Oh yeah. I, I broke many bows, but, but it never disappointed. I know I broke a bow and I said, well, that's that. And I'll go to the next one, you know? Hmm. And yeah. that's kind of out of character for me. I don't have any patience or very little patience with a lot of things. <laughs> Same. But I found for some reason, I just say, God told me that that wasn't going to work. Hmm. The thing is, it's got to be made right. It's got to perform right. You build up to about 12,000 uh, PSI in its stretch, stretching and compression. Compression. So... Um, uh, when you build that thing and it and they break, they just explode. I'm telling you. So Oof. if if you don't build <sighs> them right hurts. and work with the grain and so forth, then then that'll happen to you. And it yeah. happens to everybody. But I liked what I was doing and said, "Oh man, that just didn't. You know, that wasn't meant to be." Right. I love that. So, are you? Do you make your own arrows as well, or do you purchase those? Yes, I I I, I make them. The truly traditional, I use bo- uh, dogwood because it grows in, in in nice shafts that are, you know, you know, maybe a inch to half inch uh, in diameter and the length of an arrow. And scrape them down, put turkey feathers on them. That's what a lot of Indians used over the years. Mm. That and river cane, which makes a very good arrow. The river cane is stout okay. and light, and they make. Uh, put wild turkey feathers on them for fletching and you can't get any better. Nice. Yeah. I have a picture of my sisters and I with our, we had some bows and arrows when we were little and they were handmade 
I don't know if someone gave them to us or if we made them and I just forgot, but you know, they, we loved those things. And then we had some cheap ones that someone got us probably from Walmart somewhere later on that we used, but we were always playing with bows and arrows. And now that I think about, uh, what went goes into making a, a really good bow, um, I have a whole new respect for all of it. And, and are, so are you actually hunting with these bows or just using them for competition and yeah, target I've, practice? Uh, my, my, my main, yeah, my main, um, uh, love of of having the bow is hunting with them and i hunted uh, big game little game um all kind of small game rabbits and squirrels around here mainly got a few deer with my bow i uh i hunt hunted elk wow uh, and and shot one but i, I had i was using a uh, regular uh modern recurve hmm. uh, laminated with uh wood and um uh, uh backed with uh, modern material um interesting I, and i hit an elk with one of them and but i always thought lady if i'd had my hunted with my indian bow that day which was right. a really strong good bow right. i i, I might have recovered i hit the elk and it ran down in this big blowdown area and i was never able to recover oh. uh, but yeah. uh, anyway that's a a regret i have but i that's um, the good Lord took care of it some way and uh, was used by other animals if it did if it did uh, pass on. That's right. That's right. There's always nature has its way taking care of everything. So I, you know, when you're talking about if you had had your your homemade bow with you, it probably would have taken that elk down. So that's one thing I wasn't even realizing is that these are so strong. Obviously, it comes from back in the day when they had to have it be so strong to be able to kill, um, you know, animals that were going to feed their people and their families and their tribe. So it's just kind of an epiphany. Yeah, yeah, to yeah. Me how strong yeah they in are. old days, they would have to, right? That had you know very strong bows. They're shooting at deer, you know, and something. You got to get the strong bow shoots an arrow fast, and and it. And has wow. a lot of energy, and when it hits something and penetrates, that's what takes the animal down. So mm -hmm. they would have had as strong boats as we make now, and I'm sure, and uh, we're just we're effective with them. Yeah. And what's the string made out of? In modern times, we use a, a dacron string. It's called. You can get spools of them and just kind of twist up your own string. In, in, in old days, and, and some people still make them out of sinew, uh, strips of sinew that are twisted together, mm -hmm. and they, they are top of the line. They, they, uh, you don't want to get them wet, it's the only thing, but uh, I used the four, uh, four leg tendons out of a deer, and uh, when those are broken up just right and turned into strips of uh, sinew, then they twist it together, and spliced and spliced on down till you get the length of the string you want. And that's what mostly everybody, all Indians across America uh, used and, and, and some still make them there. They're not, uh, they're not easy to do. Uh, so I some, bet <laughs> some, some people still uh, put them together. Wow. Well, this has been interesting learning about the bow making process and that really wow, if we ever had to go back to doing things the traditional way, because we've run out of resources, 
I'm going to come to your house. Okay. And <laughs> going to, you know, go hunting with you and figure I'll, out. I'll show you. In fact, I just, well, I, I just started a couple of cattle boys here. Uh, old, uh, their mother, old friend of mine came by and said, I, they want to start. So I gave them oh, information. Wow. I gave them the book, wow. the book that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have a bench. It's called a shaving bench. Some call it a shaving horse that you put your, yeah. your uh, stave in and carve it and so forth. So they hauled it off. And uh, I'm just anxious to see. That was just a few weeks ago. Oh, I'm anxious to see how, cool. how they progressed. Well, and if they're willing to share any photos with you that I can share as well, like if they don't mind it going on social media, I'd love to be able to to share that part of the process in any way um, on my Facebook page. Yes, I have a lot of photos I'll send you. Okay, perfect. So as I mentioned earlier, and as Phil definitely knows, the dirt in Oklahoma is super red. It's this bright red colored clay that you can destroy basically any white clothing from and and you know if the clothing gets in the way of the dirt it's gone so anyway you once said to me phil that you came out of that red dirt to go on to be an engineer and i think that that is the coolest thing so i must have come out of the red dirt to, to be a podcaster or something but <laughs> so this has been extremely interesting i'm so grateful that the pastor of my former church ted mercer was kind enough to suggest that we meet up and talk about all of this expertise you hold in that red dirt mechanical engineering noggin of yours um but before we go just a couple of questions uh first off are there any native causes or businesses that you'd like to promote today i've started my own e-commerce site Chronicles of the American Indian, and uh, I have several. I sell an archery book on there and a book about uh, allotments and uh, and uh, and other things. But, um, you know, there's, uh, I think if people just look around for different businesses, now you can find, you know, as 20 years ago, there was, there were few. Mm-hmm. 30 years ago, next, you know, hardly any, uh, but now there are, uh, there are engineering firms, architectural, sure, uh, and yeah. all sorts of uh, trade, <clears throat> uh, electrical, plumbing, you know, and so forth. So Absolutely. I, I just encourage, if I could find one that, I mean, I have to have them show me that they're qualified, you know, that's what we all want. And, true, uh, true. You want to give good, good recommendations. Yeah, I get rarely it. Really do I. Definitely. And I will be sure to post your Chronicles of the American Indian site on my Facebook page so that everyone can check it out there. Thanks for sharing that. I I think it'll be super interesting. And finally, are there any words of wisdom you'd like to share with myself and our listeners? Gosh, that's a big question. Um, (laughs) What what I tell my children here, and, and I think it's important, is is I say um, uh, don't let any sorts of uh, of thoughts that you are being oppressed or uh, or have uh, racial injustice and so forth. I said anytime you start thinking like that, you'll find you'll find ways to come up with those things. Just say I'm a person. I'm a, I'm my own person. Happen to be Indian, and I can go out and do anything and uh, uh, and be be free thinking and positive. And that's, uh, that's wisdom. I don't know that 
will mean anything to anybody, but that that has been to me. I don't let anybody tell me, oh, you're just Indian and you can't do this, or you know, you've been uh, discriminated against so far. I just put that aside. I never think about that. That's my words of wisdom. Okay. I like those words of wisdom. In fact, I wish I had that on my wall, you know, so that I, I, and anyone else that views it can keep that as a reminder. There's so much to be grateful for and to look forward to. And now is our time because we have more attention and more focus on us than ever. So what are we going to do with that? super important that we jump on, um, that wagon and, and figure out ways to help others, to let our businesses be known, to, um, advocate, to help people who may need it. So those are good words of wisdom. Thank you, Phil. And Yakuki for sharing your impressive knowledge with us today. And by the way, you may have risen out of the red dirt and you may be an impressive mechanical engineer. And basically you can make anything from weapons to, I don't know, spaceships, but just a kind and gentle reminder that we Choctaws will always have the battle of Caddo Hills. Just saying. <laughs> so thanks. Right, for- well, that's, that's, uh, that's in the past and, uh, and good being with you. I enjoyed uh, <laughs> talking with you and talking about myself. You know what, what it means. So anyway, uh, thank you. for Absolutely. No, thank you for your time because this is, this has been wonderful. And I, I know that our listeners are really going to enjoy it as much as I have. So take care, Phil. And, and, uh, We'll be looking forward to seeing all those great pictures of the good stuff that you do. Potential is everywhere in the Choctaw people. It's in our schools and students. It's in our small businesses and entrepreneurs. Potential is in our lifestyle and health. It's in our culture and heritage. Passion and commitment is in our blood ingenuity and economy are a tradition. And the Chutla Foundation was founded for this potential. To cultivate minds and hearts, to stimulate ideas and passions, to extend lives and improve health through education, and to preserve and promote the power of our past the Chata Foundation, meeting the potential of the Choctaw people. Thanks for listening to Native Chalk Talk. Be sure to join our community on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Simply search for Native Chalk Talk. That's Native, C-H-O-C-T-A-L-K. And check us out at nativechalktalk.com. Stay tuned for the next episode. You're going to love it. Yakoki. Thank you, my friends.